What is a good explanation? Every day we want to know why what is happening around us is happening. We may be at the supermarket and now, for three weeks in a row, the price of milk has increased. We don't want to be just told that we should expect tomorrow it will be more expensive still or that this is the trend the government now predicts. We want to know why. And if anyone does try to provide us with a prediction that milk will be $1 a carton more expensive this time next year, we want to know how it is that they arrived at that conclusion. What do they know about the causes of price increases? If each week the local sports club sells 1,000 raffle tickets for a top prize of $500 and each week the club manager wins the prize, it's no comfort to anyone at all. If everyone can reliably predict that next time the raffle is held, the tickets are sold, that the manager will once again be announced as the winner. No one cares about that prediction. People want to know why. They have their suspicions that somehow, somewhere, cheating is going on. But they want an explanation. A good explanation. It could be that the manager himself is corrupt and he's cheating the system. But before anyone can properly conclude that, we need evidence. To rule out whether somebody might have a vendetta against the manager, wanting to make him look bad. So when video surveillance footage of the assistant manager disposing of the tickets sold into a rubbish bin, the only viable explanation left, accounting for all the parts of the problem we had before, is that the assistant manager was the corrupt one. Now that the evidence, in the form of video surveillance footage that no one disputes the validity of, has ruled out all the other explanations in favour of the assistant manager is the cause of the pattern of wins, all the other explanations are, by comparison, bad explanations. The explanation that the manager did it is a bad explanation because it's false. It solves no problems. But the explanation someone did it, although true, it's a bad explanation because it's easy to vary. It's true that someone did it. We might even say someone identical to the assistant manager and who now has assumed their identity. Or perhaps it's their hitherto unknown identical twin. The non-explanation that someone did it is a bad explanation, but it might actually be better than no explanation at all for a person who thinks that the reason for the manager's streak of wins was literal supernatural luck that exists in the universe and which tends to shine on the manager to the exclusion of all others. No, there is no such supernatural luck force. Someone did it, and that someone was the assistant manager. And now that he has been caught, we can predict that next week, the chance of the assistant manager winning the raffle is no higher than that of anyone else. The pattern which existed in the past is predicted, or postdicted, by the explanation we now have in hand, the existence of which, the existence of this explanation, is part of the reason why the trend will now fail to continue. Philosophers have debated the purpose of knowledge creation for millennia, especially when it comes to knowledge of the physical world, which we call science. Some have argued that the only purpose we have for doing science is to make predictions because we have no hope of ever coming to actually have certainty about what exists out there in physical reality. Perhaps we are dreaming or living in a simulation of some kind. We can never rule out being deceived in such ways, so the best we can hope for is that the illusions we may be experiencing have some regular character. In other words, perhaps we can at least predict what might happen from one moment to the next. But these concerns are not concerns about whether or not we can create explanations about the world that we can improve, but rather they are concerns about whether we can have absolute, 
inerrant certainty about our claims. These philosophers are right to conclude we cannot be certain, that we could always be deceived, and so the search for absolute final truth is a fool's errand. But what they are wrong about is the further claim that therefore any such attempt to create genuine objective knowledge is pointless. It is not precisely because knowledge cannot be about certainty, which is a feeling anyway. And it cannot be about final truth because there is no means by which we could ever hope to justify, or prove beyond all doubt, that we have found the truth. Instead, knowledge is about finding solutions to our problems. Our problems are real, and the solutions we try out either work or they do not. And all of this is an entirely objective process independent of the subjective feelings of anyone or what our beliefs in the ultimate true nature of reality is in any final sense. A good explanation is a solution to a problem. Indeed, when it comes to scientific theories, those good explanations are solutions to many problems, and some of the problems that are solved include predicting what will, would, or could happen under certain conditions, and many of the solutions provided by a good scientific explanation will be solutions for problems the theory's creator never imagined. That is something we call the reach of an explanation. The idea that a theory which captures something true about the world can make universal claims that apply at many different times in many different places, and thus form the basis for the solving of problems far from whatever situation initiated that original quest for a good explanation. When philosophers and scientists in the early 1800s guessed that there was a relationship between electricity and magnetism, it took experiments by Danish physicist Hans Christian Ørsted to demonstrate that indeed a current carrying wire could affect a compass needle. But neither he nor Michael Faraday, who took up this mantle and showed that the relationship could be harnessed in two ways, the electrical generator and the electrical motor, neither of them could possibly have guessed what problems their solution that today we call electromagnetism would solve. Whether or not Faraday actually ever said to a politician who questioned him about the point of his experiment into electricity that, sir, one day you may tax it, the point remains. For all his brilliance, Faraday could not have imagined the world we have today shaped by his work on generators and motors. From his laboratory in London, England in 1831, Faraday's explanation of how changing electric currents can generate magnetic fields and vice versa reaches out across time and space to places like Austin, Texas, where improved electric motors continue to be designed for Tesla cars today. That is some genuine reach, and the fundamental means by which the kinetic energy of motion in the wheels is generated from the chemical energy stored in the battery. And that explanation is essentially unchanged since Faraday. It is an electric current that produces the repulsive force on magnets, causing the torque the engine produces. All those parts of the explanation, chiefly how electricity generates a magnetic field, is very hard to vary. No other physical process can be substituted for that one. Gravity cannot be substituted for magnetism, and nuclear reactions cannot be substituted for electricity. The hard to vary aspects of the inner workings of any electric motor, however simple or sophisticated, are united by an underlying good explanation, ultimately expressed in what are now known as Maxwell's equations, including the one named after Faraday himself, Faraday's Law. 
all electrical generators that rely on a turbine, which is the overwhelming majority of electrical generation from hydroelectricity through to wind turbines and nuclear power generators and coal or gas-fired power stations, all of them rely on these good explanations, whose genesis can be found in the 1831 London laboratory of Michael Faraday and upon the 1860 desk of James Clerk Maxwell. They were solving problems of that day, idiosyncrasies, some may have thought, of the time, curiosities generating electrical sparks and magnetic effects, but the bright lights of a city in the 21st century, electric cars racing along highways and portable supercomputers carried by almost every person on Earth were not something that any of the scientists working in the 1800s had in the front of their minds. And yet, the problem of how to brighten cities at night, or transport people faster and more efficiently, or allow everyone to be interconnected on the globe, was solved in a real way, only because they explained what they did. Good explanations are hard to come by, because every part of the explanation must have a functional role that cannot be easily swapped out for any other phenomena. The good explanation that solves the question of what matter is made out of consists of our understanding of particle physics. It postulates the existence of electrons in orbit around nuclei that are themselves composed of protons and neutrons, themselves made out of particles smaller still called quarks. Each of these particles mentioned have properties like mass and electric charge that can be measured. This, in part, is what makes that theory testable and good explanations are improvable, we can reasonably ask what electrons are made of. For now, our answer is, they're not made of anything, they are fundamental, excitations of a field, but they are not protons, they cannot be easily varied. This stands in stark contrast to mythology, where events are explained in terms of the whimsical and arbitrary actions of supernatural beings. While our scientific explanation of the cause of thunder is lightning, itself a consequence of a stream of electrons leaping like a huge spark from the ground to the clouds or vice versa, a mythological account might have the Norse god Thor, or the Greek god Zeus, or the anger of any god or goddess one might care to invent. None of this is truly explanatory, because any postulated god is easily varied for another. On the other hand, the stream of electrons explanation for lightning is hard to vary, and its hard to vary character is in part due to its testability in this case. That is because we can indeed measure the charge on a bolt of lightning and find it is what we call negative, which is the same as the charges carried by electrons in orbit around atoms and opposite to that carried by protons, which are found, for example, in alpha radiation. That we can go out into the world and compare what our explanation says with what actually goes on in physical reality makes that explanation especially hard to vary. For if we do vary it, and the test turns out to refute our new explanation, then our explanation ceases to be an explanation of that phenomena. It fails to account for what we thought it would. But good explanations are not confined to science. There exist good explanations in history. The reason why North Koreans today remain under communist rule while South Koreans enjoy free trade is not because the North voted that way and allowed the capitalists to all migrate South. It is rather that the United States, with the agreement of the Soviet Union, divided the Korean Peninsula in half along the 38th North parallel line of latitude, such that the Soviet Union de facto controlled the North and the United States controlled the South. All those parts of the explanation, the USSR, the USA, the 38th parallel, explain the political and economic division that exists on the Korean Peninsula and the historic events ever since. And morally, 
we can see an explanation that liberty, especially when it comes to trade, is the underlying explanation for why it is that nations that tend towards communism have a far larger proportion of their citizens in poverty as compared to nations where those citizens are free to trade one with another and indeed the citizens of other nations. We can look to history for demonstrations of this and we can argue from first principles that coercion is always and everywhere it is practiced antithetical to progress and prosperity. But in this case, we should not want to further test such a theory. One might have a good explanation that coercion leads to suffering and persistent wide-scale suffering causes depression and poverty. But to test such a claim would itself be a moral failing, for to test whether some amount of suffering or deprivation causes depression and poverty would mean causing suffering and deprivation in the first place. We can have good explanations of our moral and economic stances without ever needing to test them. In these cases, we do not need any further so-called empirical data or any carefully controlled experiment. We argue on principle that liberty is necessary for progress and problem solving. We do not need to further deprive people of liberty in order to carefully control our test of whether it really is the case that a lack of liberty leads to worse outcomes in general for people. Indeed, here we can see that prediction cannot be the point of our good explanations, for if there exists a debate about whether we can predict an imprisoned person will be more industrious than a person with liberty, what settles the matter cannot be a direct comparison. It does not matter whether we predict more or less industriousness because the net worth of a person is not measured against the quantity of work they do. A person is not a machine whose value is couched in terms of the number of widgets it can assemble per hour. Each person is different, so even if one person or a hundred people were by some metric more industrious when imprisoned, it would be morally abhorrent to turn that claim into a rule for all because people are widely different one from another, unlike machines which might all be manufactured to the same standards. Fundamentally, a person has intrinsic value and creates new kinds of value and what maximizes that will be a very individual thing indeed. Much of our work is mysterious. How can we improve the flourishing of everyone? How can we increase wealth, cure disease, understand the deeper nature of matter, energy, time and space? Each time we solve a problem through an explanation of the world, new windows open up, revealing what we did not realize we did not even know before. When Rutherford, Geiger and Marsden fired alpha particles, helium nuclei, at a thin film of gold leaf, they found to their surprise that the structure of the atom consisted of a tiny dense nucleus with the rest of the volume of the atom being mostly empty space. But if that was the case, it raised new questions of how the particles were distributed in that nucleus and throughout the empty space, if at all. And we could then go on to ask whether that nucleus was composed of other particles that were even smaller. Only then could some questions even be posed properly now that we had some more answers. The quest for further good explanations never ends. It only accelerates as each new explanation never ends in a cul-de-sac, but rather reveals more avenues down which to go. David Deutsch speaks of the purpose of knowledge creation as being like understanding a conjuring trick. If we are watching the apparent soaring in half of a person on the stage, we can reliably predict that each and every time, by the end of the performance, the assistant to the magician will appear fully intact, legs and all. But that prediction is not understanding. To understand how the trick works, we can reject any explanation in terms of it being actual magic. The conjurer actually did something, but what? 
Well, the assistant is very flexible, and that box they are in, it's far larger than it appears, and those legs, they weren't really hers after all. There were three people on that stage, not two. The magician and his two assistants, though you only ever see the face and the torso of one of them. The knowledge that there really are three people there is a good explanation of what has gone on. Our attempts to understand our world are like attempts to understand conjuring tricks. Science and history and all of our ways of explaining what is happening are attempts to do away with mere predictions and appeals to the supernatural. We want to understand the mechanism, how it works, what the causes are, and account precisely for what is going on in the world. Once we have that account, that good, hard-to-vary explanation, only then can we begin to make any valid predictions. Although, rather often, our best explanation might even rule out the possibility of a prediction. Consider that our best explanation of the evolution of a star like the Sun has it that a vast cloud of hydrogen and helium gas and cosmic dust, which is basically everything else except the hydrogen and helium, it collapsed, condensed, and then coalesced into a sphere where, in its core, nuclear reactions initiated and began at a certain rate that barely changes over time. Given these rates of reaction, and given the mass of the Sun, it can be estimated that the fuel sufficient for another 5 billion years or so of fusion reactions can continue. At this time, typically, so our astrophysics tells us, the Sun will expand into a red giant star. It may or may not expand to engulf the Earth itself, but, so it is said, regardless of this, the oceans will boil away as the surface of the Sun approaches our planet and the disk of the Sun comes to fill our sky. But is that genuinely a prediction in the case of our Sun? It rests upon our best-known astrophysics explanation, but it ignores a crucial thing. It ignores the choices, wealth and power of people a billion or five billion years hence. It may well be the case that we can routinely control the rate of reactions in stars by then, or it may be that we decide to move the Earth out of its orbit, or any of countless other things we might decide to do which make the claim the oceans will boil away false. And if that claim is false, then the explanation cannot have been a good one in retrospect when applied to our Sun. Any prediction about what might happen billions of years hence, where the knowledge that people are creating could have an effect, is prophecy. A prediction made in the absence of a good explanation is a prophecy. A good explanation identifies and then eliminates error. How can we possibly guess what people might do tomorrow, let alone a billion years hence? The free choice of a person is part of distant good explanations, and it is a variable that can never be controlled by definition, and thus is forever beyond science to predict. But this is not a problem for the process of science. It is only a problem for the prophets who seek to apply science to problems which are not in the main scientific. Our good explanations of the world include the scientific, but are also far more broad than this. Importantly, our good explanation of what good explanations are and what the limits of science are, are not scientific matters. They are matters of epistemology and philosophy. They are explanations of why science works and what reason is and how all of this allows for unbounded progress, which is inherently unpredictable. Our best explanations are hard to vary, but this does not mean they are set in stone. They can be refuted, overturned and improved. So the quest for good explanations goes on forever. It is the way we solve our problems. It is the way we improve ourselves and everyone else. And in a very real sense, the quest for good explanations is not only what transforms the world and transforms us, it is our reason for being.
We are the universe explaining itself.